0: Welcome all on this lovely uh, 1st of April. Um, I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. For those of you who don't know us, uh, we were founded by Benjamin Franklin back in the the 18th century, uh, 1731 if memory serves. Uh, Today, we're an independent research library. We have specializations in early American print and visual culture, Uh, certainly book history, African-American history, women's history, and political economy and society. And this series, our Fireside Chat series, has been going for now a little bit over a year. We started it, well, actually, we're coming up on our year anniversary. And it was originally intended to be a monthly webinar series to keep our community connected while we were um, navigating what was supposed to be a two-week closure And it continued, and fortunately, our research fellows stepped up. We have a wonderful cohort of research fellows, current and former, who volunteered to support us and to sustain this program. It's my pleasure to introduce our special guest today from our sister institution, the American Philosophical Society, another fine Franklinian institution. Kyle Roberts is the Associate Director of the Library and Museum Programming at the American Philosophical Society Library and Museum. Prior to coming to the APS, Dr. Roberts was an associate professor of public history and new media and the director of the Center for Textual Studies and Digital Humanities at Loyola University, Chicago. A prize-winning scholar and educator of the Atlantic world, uh, religion, print, and library history, he's the author or editor of several books, including Evangelical Gotham, Religion in the Making of New York City, 1783 to 1860 and digital humanities projects, including the, Jesu- the Jesuit Libraries Providence Project. But of course, his, his highest honor was that back in 2005, he was an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you for sharing your research tonight.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Will. I remember when we set this up, we were thinking about what, what our sort of April Fool's angle would be. Um, well, turns out, giving it to oh, the talk- two
0: of us, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: or giving a talk about a Catholic library on Maundy Thursday might not be (laughs) the best timing. So uh, for everybody who's gonna be listening to this in the podcast version or on YouTube later on, good on you for going to service tonight. So, but I'll I'll turn on my stopwatch and and I'll take away. So thank you, Will, uh, so much for the opportunity to be part of this wonderful fireside chat series. So, The Fireside Chat series has really accompanied me uh, on many of the long walks that I've taken during this pandemic. Uh, And Will knows this firsthand because often I will text him while I'm out on my walk about something that I've heard. Uh, So I'm very honored uh, to now join uh, the illustrious company uh, that's been doing these talks for now over a year. In the time I have today, I wanna talk about my current book project, which looks at how libraries reveal the centrality of print to 19th century Catholicism, and the transnational hybrid identities of urban American Catholics, balancing allegiance to the state, to their often European homelands and the global Catholic church. In the first half of the talk, I'll share with you the subject of my study, St. Ignatius College, uh, which you can see in an engraving there on your screen, some of the questions animating this larger study, the sources available for studying Catholic libraries, some of the larger trends that have emerged from this library study, and then in the second half, I wanted to share some of the insights from the chapter that I've been working on this winter on biography. So if you're interested in biography, uh, wait for the second half. Uh, you got some good material. Uh, as Will said, I do have an LCP backstory. Uh, I was a short term fellow there back in 2005, 2006. And I spent my time there in the reading room, pouring through the writings of evangelical antebellum New Yorkers. Uh, I was specifically looking for any of their memoirs or biographies written by converts, Uh, and as so many of you know, there's such rich periodical collections there, I found way more than I could even go through in a month. These were one of the sources that I used to try to understand evangelical experience of the rapidly modernizing city of New York. Both their contributions, evangelical contributions uh, to the development of the city, but also the city's influence on their own understanding of their faith. And that research culminated in my 2016 book, Evangelical Gotham, Religion in the Making of New York City, 1783 to 1860. But the project I wanna talk about today comes out of my research and teaching as a faculty member in the history department at Loyola University Chicago from 2011 to 2019. As a public historian and a digital humanist, I wanted a research project in which I could engage my undergraduate and graduate students with local collections. And there was nothing more local than the special collections and university archives at Loyola. Having studied antebellum New York evangelicals post-Civil War Catholic Chicagoans seem maybe like a good next choice. Uh, this this project was gonna allow me to focus on a very different urban setting. 19th century Chicago is a very different city than, than New York, a different source base. What does it look like to do urban history uh, through a library and a very different way of researching history. And that re- way of researching history uh, is a collaborative project. So I want to acknowledge from the start that this project has benefited from the insights in work of over 40 Loyola students uh, who have contributed to it. They have demonstrated that library history is a remarkably generative subject, offering students a broad range of research possibilities. And if anybody wants to talk about teaching with libraries, with historic libraries in Q and A, let's do that. These students who you see in front of you have all graduated and they've gone on to library school and doctoral programs in history and literature, law school, careers in finance, journalism, and public history. And part of the impetus for doing this project now is to synthesize their scholarship in conjunction with my own observations uh, to build this larger interpretation of Jesuit library building within the city of Chicago in the last quarter of the 19th century. This is St. Ignatius College on the right. It opened in September, 1870. So if you're doing the math, yes, uh, opened 150 years ago, last fall. The Jesuits had arrived in Chicago in 1857, and they first built Holy Family Church, which you see on the left of the engraving. Then they worked on building up a system of parochial schools with women religious, uh, the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the BVMs. Uh, For any of you who followed Loyola men's basketball, Sister Jean is a BVM. Uh, And also the RCJs, the Sisters of the Sacred Heart. Jesuits worked very closely with women religious, a very important theme in doing Catholic history. Uh, And then they were ready to build their college. Uh, And this college is sort of a combination high school and college education, originally six years, later seven years. It was built on the west side of Chicago in an Irish and German neighborhood, a heavily immigrant neighborhood, two blocks north of Maxwell Street. Chicago itself is a Catholic city. We can talk more about that later. The faculty were largely exiled Europeans, Belgians, Germans, Irish, Jesuits, uh, many of whom had fled some form of persecution to come to the United States. And they were teaching the sons of Irish and German immigrants. This uh, St. Ignatius College is the precursor to Loyola University of Chicago today. And it had a library, uh, which they were very proud of and which grew very quickly uh, from zero books in 1870 to 10,000 by 1880. And this is, I think, impressive given that the entire city, (laughs) that much of the city of Chicago burned down around it in 1871. So how can library history help us understand urban and religious history? Uh, They're not necessarily uh, sort of groups, types of history that are always studied together. Library history has really flourished over the past few decades. It's a truly interdisciplinary field. It attracts scholars from literature and history and religious studies, library and information history, digital humanities, computing, and many more disciplines. And it brings them together to think about libraries and ask a range of questions about the history of books, the history of reading, social network analysis, intellectual topics, and so on. My work with Mark Towsey and 80 other scholars in the community libraries network over the last decade has really inspired me to take seriously the role that libraries play in historic processes of identity construction and community formation. We have to remember this is an age when print in general and books in particular were the primary means by which people were exposed to new ideas. Libraries thus served as the vehicle through which shared notions of identity were disseminated among a variety of real and imagined communities. Libraries could be both liberatory, opening people up to access to new ideas and exclusionary, restricting individuals based on political, social, racial, gender or religious boundaries. So my particular project is to think about what libraries can tell us about identity formation among an urban Catholic community? What can the books collected by the foreign born members of a Catholic religious order for training students in a rapidly commercializing city tell us, for example, about the members of that order, about their students and their aspirations, and more broadly about the urban context in which they were undertaking their mission? How did urban Chicago shape the belief practices and worldviews of Jesuits and their students? And in turn, how did they shape the city? So why Chicago? There are lots of other cities I could have looked at. I mean, I happen to have a job in Chicago at the time. Uh, Why Jesuits? There are lots of other religious orders in Chicago. In wondering why there's been such a profusion of scholarship on the pre-suppression society. So the Society of Jesus was begun in 1540. It was suppressed by the Pope in 1773. Uh, There's a huge amount of scholarship in the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, on the early society but there's actually very little scholarship or is increasing now um, on the society after its restoration. Wrestling with that, John McGreevy in a 2007 review wrote, the 19th century Jesuits, fervently ultramontane, devoted to the sacred heart, fierce defenders of Pope Pius IX in the 1870 definition of papal infallibility and suspicious of liberalism in all its varieties and the public schools that seem to inculcate it surely seemed unlikely role models for Jesuit and non-Jesuit scholars in the immediate post-conciliar or post-Vatican II era. Their zeal seemed triumphalist, their vision narrowly institutional. Well, I have to admit that reading McGreevy's observation made me want to study the 19th century Jesuits more. This made them sound more fascinating and more complicated, and maybe in some ways more relevant uh, to today. And I arrived at uh, Loyola at just the right time. My work with former Loyola colleague, Steve Schlesser, uh, with archivist Kathy Young and Ashley Houdeschel, with independent scholars, Ellen Scarrett and Rima Lunen-Schultz, as well as the other scholars who were involved with the 2014 Bicentennial of the Restoration of the Society exhibition and conference that we threw at Loyola in 2014, uh, uh, volume that's entitled Crossings and Dwellings, if you want to look for it on the Burrill website. has really, that work has really challenged us to rethink 19th century Jesuits. Uh, they are, they have to be considered as irreducibly transnational. Jesuits are always on the move. They are part of the 60 million Europeans, half of them Catholic, who left Europe over the 19th century. And it wasn't just from east to west. Uh, Pierre de Smet, a pioneering Jesuit missionary, went back and forth between Europe and America 19 times in the middle part of the 19th century. The US was the dynamic arena of activity for Jesuits in the mid 19th century after the restoration. Uh, The British North America was really quite insignificant before the suppression, but it was in the US that they put all of their energy. And this was their setting for expansive and vicious missions. And it was a refuge for persecuted and exiled Jesuits from other parts of the world. Ideas that would have been anathema to 19th century Jesuits in Europe, right? Such as the separation of church and state, In fact, as you'll see, served them pretty well in the the United States. 19th century Jesuits worked very closely with women religious. Uh, Too often, Catholic histories are either about the nuns or the priests, and they don't look at the very important ways that they worked uh, together. 19th century Jesuits, in a way that I don't even think we fully appreciated in 2014, were dependent on enslaved labor. Uh, The important work done by Kelly Schmidt and her colleagues in the Slavery, History, Memory and Reconciliation Project out of St. Louis shows that pre-Civil War Jesuits in the Missouri province were dependent upon enslaved labor for their operations. They did not free people, really, until they had to at the very end of the war, uh, and they continued to wrestle with that legacy following the Civil War. And finally, Jesuits in the 19th century, like their forefathers, utilized various ways of proceeding. Uh, I'm not going to deny that a majority of post-Restoration Jesuits were ultramontanist, anti-liberal, anti-Protestant, and they immigrated to a nation that was democratic, fiercely nationalist, and very Protestant. Uh, But what do they do when they get here? They build institutions precisely in order to assist other immigrants become participating democratic citizens. They work to figure out, they create ways of proceeding uh, in order to figure out how to exist in this new society, and in fact, how to thrive. The other thing to keep in mind uh, is that Chicago is in itself has unique characteristics, but I would also argue it is representative of larger Catholic urban community building. Over the course of the century following the restoration, Jesuits launched missions to indigenous people, but put a lot of their energy into building urban community. Their most significant accomplishment might well be the creation or the, of a network of Jesuit schools uh, that stretched from coast to coast. At the heart of this project was the Missouri province, located in St. Louis, Missouri. The Missouri province actually at one point covered everything west of Mississippi and a lot that was east. Provincial boundaries do not follow state boundaries. The Missouri province over time created 16 different schools, from Grand Coteau in Louisiana, to Milwaukee and Wisconsin, to Cleveland and Ohio, to Las Vegas, New Mexico, a massive spread um, that encompassed a huge, a huge number of Catholics. And by the end of the 19th century, Jesuit colleges and universities were thriving so much that they came into open conflict with Protestant schools, most famously in 1893, as Harvard president, Charles W. Eliot barred graduates of Jesuit colleges, from admission to harvard law school so you know you've arrived if harvard doesn't want you my goal is to suggest that saint ignatius as one of the 16 midwestern schools was actually more representative than unique in how judgments responded to the challenges that their new nation threw at them all right so one of the, the sources that i have to work with and that my students worked with up one uh, a catalog and this was our first phase Sometime in the late 1870s, a librarian created a subject catalog for the burgeoning library of St. Ignatius College. The rapid growth of the collection, in fact, probably necessitated the creation of the catalog around 1878 by Peter John Van Loco, uh, a Belgian uh, Jesuit who had been exiled uh, and come to Chicago. There's about 5,100 titles in it uh, with about 8,000 volumes. The library catalogs arrangement in six divisions, So it's broken down into pantology, theology, philosophy, legislation, literature, and history, reflected as much the layout of the library shelves, I believe, as it did the intellectual framework of a Jesuit education. For any of you who have done work on library history, you know that analog catalogs like this are not easy to use in their original form. Uh, So working with Kathy Young and Ashley Houdishow, we were able to digitize the catalog, We had it fully transcribed, uh, and then as part of our digital humanities project we took the bibliographic information, uploaded it to a virtual library system, and then copy cataloged it uh, to reconstruct it. And I'm happy to talk more in the Q&A about how we did that. So we knew what was in the catalog. We did this in a graduate seminar in 2013 with 16 graduate students. What about original books? Well, as it turned out, doing the work of reconstructing the library revealed that about 1,800 books survive in Loyola University libraries today. That's about a third of the original books. 600 are in special collections, 1,050 in the library storage facility, and 150 in the circulating collection of Cudahy Library. So that last part means they're still on the shelves. There's fewer of them on the shelves now in 2021 than there was in 2014, but they were there. So after 150 years, this is kind of impressive that these books are still available for me to be checked out. Uh, so students researched the books, they tracked them down, they pulled them all off the shelves, they photographed anything interesting, title pages, marginalia, uh, other provenance markings. They created bibliographic metadata, and then they uploaded it to a digital archive. And the URLs is, uh, is down there at the bottom. I'll also send around some links in the chat. So we've got these two sources, a reconstructed catalog, all of these books, 5,100 entries, 5,850 images in a digital archive. The students are creating scholarship. There's seven, over 70 posts on our blog that we've published multiple journal articles. Uh, one student did a master's project. There's been tons of pages of journaling. So what next? Well, monograph, naturally, to pull it all together. Just some, really quickly before I move on to the biography chapter, I wanted to share with you five trends that have emerged in looking at the whole catalog and all the books we pulled off the shelves. Trend one, 83% of the books were published in the 19th century. And a majority of those books were published within a generation between sort of 1840 and 1880 of the opening of the school. Now this for our students is a bit of a surprise. These are new books. Jesuits aggressively collected new books for their new library. And I think that reflects actually a part of their, mind, their mindset. They're not looking to track down older books uh, with the percentage of which is actually much higher in other Jesuit library collections. It's quite surprising that these books survive today because they were buying new books. they were also buying cheap books. Uh, and a lot of these books are built, made of that printed on that highly acidic uh, paper. You've probably seen it in a used bookstore. You pull, you open it up and it starts to crumble in your hands. Uh, many of the books unfortunately are, are in that condition. This is a highly cosmopolitan collection. Uh, Each red dot on there is a different imprint location. My previous project, uh, not the the New York one, but one on English uh, dissenters, if I were to do a map of that, everything was published either in England or somewhere in Holland. Uh, The Jesuits were collecting very broadly uh, from across the continent in many different languages. I like to joke that Jesuits never met a book they didn't want to put their name in. And I love that. I appreciate that because it made it so much easier to be able to verify that something in the catalog was in fact the original book in front of us. Um, so what we see, so if a library catalog tells us what books they collected, the books themselves that survive tell us where the books might have come from and how they were used. Take a quick look at the book on the right, right? So it's a st- standard history of Christ uh, written by a Protestant minister. Well, somebody, maybe the Jesuit librarian, Wrote on the top a Protestant book in in pencil. Wanted to make sure that this was this was noted. I imagine the the student in the school who's like, I haven't read a Protestant book. What's what's that about? And then wanting to take it out and then seeing the non-circulating stamp right, which is on the diagonal there. We begin to open up histories of censorship, right, of access. On the left, you see a book that was actually in a pre-old society, pre-suppression Jesuit library in Passau, Bavaria that was closed in the late 1760s, but somehow the book stayed within Jesuit networks or came back into a Jesuit network afterwards. This is a highly intentional collection, fourth trend. Um, And this has come really more, it's really sunk into me more over the last year. This is a library collection built to support a curriculum, right? And it always goes back to the curriculum. Sometimes it's very explicit, uh, so here in the literature section, there are, uh, subsections for oratory and poetry, which map onto specific years in the Jesuit curriculum. Other times it's more subtle, um, but we see in the history section, it's a lot of books about nationalism, right? It's about an effort to try to figure out how to mold these young men into democratic citizens. There are, and the fifth trend is that this is a, a catalog full of tensions. Uh, There are tensions between the old society and the new society. There are tensions between Europe and America. There are tensions between liberalism and absolutism, between Catholicism and Protestantism, and probably most saliently between the Ratio Studiorum, which is the Jesuits' 16th century plan for education. It is the universal template used by every Jesuit school around the world, really up until the mid-20th century, and the needs of a professionalized city. Does somebody studying bookkeeping at St. Ignatius need to know, need to be fluent in Greek and Latin? And that's the tension and that's the question they're wrestling with. So as I said, I've been working on biographies over the fall. A biographical mania gripped Americans in the 19th century. This rage for the lives of noteworthy individuals impelled men and women to consume an increasing number of books. To satisfy this demand, authors scribbled and Presses groaned out scores of new books every year. Not only did more individuals, but also a greater variety of people now have the opportunity to have their lives told. Jesuits were not immune to the biography bug. They collected upwards of 255 unique biographies in 470 volumes over the school's first eight years. They they gathered the classics, Plutarch's Lives in multiple editions, and bestsellers like Parson Weems' Life of Washington. They sought out the lives of people who meant a lot to them. So they had multiple editions of the life of Ignatius Loyola, their founder. Um, But they also bought people who they weren't quite sure how they thought about and they wanted to keep them close, such as Mrs. St. Jean Harper's Maria Monk's Daughter. Uh, For those of you who study 19th century Catholicism, you'll know the awful disclosures of Maria Monk, uh, a rabid anti-Catholic work. This is a work by her converted daughter. Through these works, they literally surrounded themselves with compatriots in the global Catholic Church in their European, from their European homelands, and there's a lot of books in here from Belgium and Ireland, because that's where the Jesuits had come from, uh, and their adopted homeland of the United States. And again, going back to that theme of new books for a new nation, these were largely new books. 83% of the books in biography had been, uh, 83% of the biographies had been collected, had been printed within a generation of the school's opening. In fact, what we can see, what we can start to reconstruct is that 18 biographies out of 44 that they held for holy women uh, have been published since the 1870 opening. So we can actually see Jesuits aggressively collecting in their first years all of these works about women religious, uh, which I think is really quite fascinating and gives us some insight into the way they're modifying themselves in their their first decade. There are, of course, older books as well. Uh, They had a 1734 edition from Venice of the Acta Sanctorum, Uh, the official history of the lives of the Catholic saints. They were very proud of it, and they put it in the newspaper (laughs) that they had gotten it. Today, nearly 49% of these biographies survive in Loyola libraries, revealing, as you will see, important information that's not always recorded in the catalog. All right, so so why collect biographies? To ordinary 19th century Americans, and I'm really following here, and those of you in the audience will notice this, the work of Scott Casper and others, Biographies served as agents of character formation. Biographies offered readers examples of how they might construct their own public and private selves in morally and politically acceptable ways. Understandings of how to do so changed over time. For example, early 19th century biographies tended to be more didactic and nationalistic. Uh, They were interested in inculcating virtue through the imitation of public actions. Later biographies focused more on private habits, seeking to inspire the development of individuality. So the shift, right, sort of from imitation, outward imitation of a certain set of characteristics to inspiration to develop one's own authentic character to find one's true self was predicated on two things. It was predicated on a belief in the agency of an individual to make a change in her or his, himself. And it's also predicated on the power of reading to facilitate that change. So that's the sort of 19th century kind of American approach, American use of biographies. Jesuits drew on a very different (laughs) and much older approach. Uh, They actually kind of converse. Their ratio studiorum, as I said, their Jesuit plan for education, delineated a process for molding the character of those under their charge. Character formation, explains Eugene Devlin, was a directed and purposeful training of a student's intellectual and volitional powers to assist him to acquire worthwhile ideals, self-control through a disciplined will, suitable moral habits, emotional control, and moral integrity. Jesuits interwove character formation throughout their curriculum. They, it was manifest in asking students to read ancient classics, which would become a medium for imparting, abiding, and universal values. Jesuits imparted it through performing dramas, by bestowing a sense of dignity through modeling the example of the lives of worthy men and women of classical times, of the saints of the Christian church, uh, and then the life of Jesus Christ, who, of course, was the the perfect model. Uh, One learned character formation through the example of instructors. Uh, Instructors modeled a concrete and living expression of adherence to Christian moral principles. And finally, this this system developed over the centuries actually could be found everywhere in an expansive collegiate environment. The lessons were reinforced in the classroom, in the sanctuary, and even on the playing field. So you go out to play baseball, you're actually being turned into a good Christian man. Very different approach here, right? So the 19th century kind of sort of secular approach, read books and change yourself. Jesuit approach, no, no, we'll change you. We're going to make you into a young man. We can see this difference uh, in the way they classified biographies at St. Ignatius. If any of us, were to travel back in time, there's no biography section for us to find. It is, in fact, located within the history section, and it's divided into two different areas. One is profane or secular history. The other is ecclesiastical or sort of sacred history. Under profane history and under ecclesiastical history, there are separate shelves for collected biographies versus special or individual biographies. Now, the special biographies in ecclesiastical history are further broken down into popes, bishops, of religious or men in vowed orders uh, and of holy women, which is largely professed women. Protestant history does not exist in ecclesiastical history. So if you wanna find a biography of a Protestant, you actually have to go to profane history. And what becomes really interesting is the librarian polices this boundary in many different ways. So if any of you were in search of a biography of Joan of Arc, for example, you actually had to head to profane history. Joan of Arc was not in ecclesiastical history. Even though the Maid of Orleans had been celebrated as a folk saint since the mid 15th century, and that the Catholic, French Catholic hierarchy had actually relaunched her cause for canonization just as St. Ignatius opened to Peter John Van Loco, she was just an audacious female military leader. Now, so this begs the question, if the Jesuits at St. Ignatius had such a different approach to character formation than the American culture in which they set up shop, why collect so many biographies? Well, on the one hand, I do think they are participating in some ways in this sort of culture of American culture of of biographical character formation. But the short answer is that biographies actually do all manner of cultural work. Their focus on the narrative an individual affords a valuable window into a range of secular and sacred phenomena prevalent in the 19th century. The biographies that the Jesuits collected reveal not only what developments and concerns interested the Jesuits, but also what materials they collected to sort of help them think through their own position on these issues. Um, So i want to give you a few examples of this sort of thinking through. You're gonna see on the right in these slides, uh, some of the original books from the collection. So in secular biographies, the Jesuits do not assemble an encyclopedic collection. They are not trying to get one of every bit from every time period. They really focus their energy on the contemporary world, which I would define as the sort of century leading up to The founding of the school, and then the wellsprings of that world, in their view, ancient Greece and Renaissance and Reformation Europe. Now, for a group of men who had witnessed national uprisings in Europe firsthand and often had to flee, they certainly collected a lot of biographies of nationalist leaders. Um, There are a smaller number, and and there's an interesting divide here. They're not terribly interested in European nationalists. Um, They do collect a lot of books about Bonaparte, uh, but you will not find any biographies of Cavour or Garibaldi. Um, They have far more abundant collections of men who had led their adopted homeland. We have multiple editions that survive of biographies of Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, the Marquis de Lafayette, even General Francis Marion, uh, a biography less popular today, but quite popular in the 19th century. And it speaks to those men's enduring appeal to the American public, especially as the nation approached its centennial. For all its promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American nation was founded on principles of chattel slavery and white supremacy, and the collection had several architects uh, that upheld that unequal structure. Biographies of Jefferson, Jackson, Madison, Supreme Court justices Joseph Story, and Roger Taney. Um, So purportedly, anti-nationalist Jesuits had had plenty of material (laughs) to read up on on American nationalism. They also stocked uh, their shelves with a who's who of 18th and 19th century European and American literary figures. Jesuit embrace of the creative arts is not surprising. It has a long history um, and it's integral to their their curriculum. Uh, So you will find Pope and Goldsmith and Coleridge and Goethe and Dickens and Irving on their shelves. You won't find the French philosophes. There's no Voltaire, there's no Rousseau, there's no Diderot biographies. There is uh, the history of Charles XII by Voltaire, so he can, he's sometimes let in. It was surprising to me that there's no copy of the life, of Boswell's Life of Johnson. Uh, so some interesting choices being made here. They're collecting works of ancient Greece, um, mostly looking for uh, figures um, for them to emulate. Uh, Nepo's Lives of Excellent Men, as you can see up here, was collected in eight different editions. I just wanna point out some of the writings you see on this. Uh, this is a book that was specifically given by the province to be part of this new collection. It was, it was picked out as some, as a book that was deemed that they needed to have. And they also had several Renaissance and Reformation uh, biographies. Uh, not surprising, the society was founded during the Renaissance. It was the period where the church fractured and reformed. It's a period where uh, kingdoms waged relentless wars. And there's actually a lot of works on explorers um, who are using, who are honing new navigational skills and encountering a broad range of new cultures beyond Europe. So in some ways, a connection to the pre-suppression society. You might ask, are there, uh, is the Reformation talked about in here? Uh, it is. Uh, Jesuits acquired narratives of the Reformation's canonical Protestant leaders, but did so, as you can see on the screen, through a Catholic lens. They bought uh, the works of French Catholic historians Uh, works, especially by Jean-Marie Vincent Auden. Uh, And you can see the first volume of that series, his work on Martin Luther. Uh, Again, a a piece given by the province. Uh, It was deemed that this is the history of Luther that you need to have. Um, So telling the Reformation, but through a Catholic worldview. Now, the ecclesiastical biographies are interesting because they're both narrower and broader. And what I mean by that is they are narrower in that they are focused on specific categories of Catholics, the popes, bishops of religious and holy women. But they're broader in that they have to collect the law, that they have to embody the global Catholic church. There's actually very little attempt at globalism in the profane biographies. Uh, There's more attempt uh, within the ecclesiastical. Works in the section reflect the concerns of the church, frankly, in the second half of the 19th century. One concern is papal infallibility. Two weeks after St. Ignatius opens its doors, the First Vatican Council largely comes to an end because the liberal Italian troops breach the Vatican and uh, basically send Pope Pius IX into exile, uh, which he and his successors will do for the next uh, sixty years. So the Jesuits are dealing with at the same uh, dealing with issues of papal infallibility, the primacy of the pope as the Vatican is under siege. Uh, so they collect works on popes uh, that were strong leaders, uh, especially during the Counter Reformation. Uh, They collect uh, a biography of the Pope that restored them. They do not collect a biography of the Pope that suppressed them. So take that, Clement. There are works in here about the communion of saints. Uh, The of religious section is actually the largest section. Um, The Jesuits were big saint makers uh, before their suppression. They went into hyperdrive after uh, after they were restored. Uh, Many of the works that are on the shelves um, in the of religious section, or in Holy Women, are in fact biographies written to advance causes for beatification or canonization. Missouri Jesuits, Missouri Province Jesuits, were actually particularly invested in in Belgian scholastic John Berkman, uh, a work here that you can see uh, on the screen. They actively documented miracles uh, that were attributed to him to advance his canonization process in the mid-19th century. American Jesuit involvement in the promotion of new saints was more than just about renewing the place of a once disgraced order on the global Catholic stage. It was also, I think, an opportunity for, the Ameri- for American Catholic followers to feel closer to Rome while participating in a key component of Catholicism that distinguished them from their Protestant neighbors. And I'm indebted to the work of Patrick Hayes, especially on, on St. Peter Claver, for really sort of helping me think through that point. They're also interested in um, the urban order. 19th century American cities benefited from rethinking of the role of women religious. Founders of new orders refused to cloister themselves increasingly in the 18th and 19th century. Instead, they served the urban poor through teaching, which of course is a mission dear to the Jesuits heart, as well as providing healthcare and social welfare support, uh, relief programs and institution building. Jesuits uh, collected biographies of several women founders Uh, You can see on the screen a biography of the 18th century uh, founder, Madame de Youville, uh, from Montreal. Uh, And this is a work, in fact, that was inscribed to Arnold Damon, uh, who was the founder of the order. This book is now, and I should say, all of these books now can largely be found in special collections at Loyola. So the more time I spend with the Jesuits library, the more I've come to appreciate the extent to which it functioned really as a site for working out 19th century American and Catholic identity. The exiled European Jesuits who created this library recognized that they lived within a world much different uh, than the one that they had left in Europe and much different than the one they would have designed for themselves. They approached the world with the tools of the past. Uh, So there's a heavy reliance, as I said, on the Ratio Studiorum, but they also gathered materials very much of the present. As their forefathers in the mission field, and remember the American Catholic Church was a mission church until the early 20th century, they embraced multiple ways of proceeding. Rather than dogmatically lock themselves into one response to a pressing issue, they worked within their environment to create multiple ways forward. I think their response to the American Civil War within their library provides one such moment. As I already mentioned, the Missouri province depended for 40 years on the labor of the enslaved we now know that upwards of 200 women and men were either owned or oversaw by the the province. Even if St. Ignatius was in the so-called sort of free north, it was staffed by Jesuit faculty who had been trained at seminaries that depended on slave labor and in faculty who had worked in earlier schools in slave communities. So how then to face this new post 1865 reality? Could the Jesuits at St. Ignatius simply walk away from their past, or could their biographies maybe help them work through it? One of the first books that our students had pulled off the shelves, uh, and this was off the circulating shelves at Cudahy Library, is a book that we might expect to find in a northern college. Uh, There's a telling inscription, as you can see here on the left, on the inside front cover, and this is the third volume of Ronca's Lives of the Popes, and it's a Pretty standard 19th century edition, uh, but the inscription really sort of sets it apart. Taken from the house of the Reverend James A. Harrell, Falls Church, Fairfax County, Virginia, late rector of St. Andrew's Free Church, Washington, now in the rebel service. 30th NYSV Upton Hill, October 5th, 1861. Now the name of the person who had taken the book, which would have been down there in the lower left, um, has been effaced. But through the magic of blogging and social media image sharing, our students were able to connect with someone who informed them that it was written by this gentleman, John Gordon Morrison, a member of the 30th NYSV, New York State Volunteers. Even better, Morrison's diary survives with entries documenting his engagement with the book. Friday, October 4th, 1861. Visited the house of the late rector of the church, the Reverend James A. Harold, and a precious rascal he was pretending to be a union man. He has run clear sense, the spy is after him. I took seven volumes of his books. Now this story I think fits neatly with our expectation of the Chicago Jesuit relationship to the Civil War. Situated in in Chicago, comfortably in the free North, surely they were on the right side of history. Morrison, for that matter, the good union soldier who's taken his contraband from the precious rascal um, is also a good example, I think, would be pointed to as a good example of character. James A. Harold, uh, the rector who ran away pretending to be something else than he was, he certainly was not a good example. The reality of course I think is is probably not so simple. Jesuits collected indeed uh, the biographies of many union officers and figures. They had two biographies of Lincoln. They had biographies of Stephen Douglas, William Tecumseh Sherman and Thomas Ewing. Now, Douglas and Sherman and Ewing all had Catholic connections. Douglas and Ewing married Catholics, and Sherman had a son who later became a Jesuit. But they didn't end there. They also collected biographies of Confederate generals, Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, as well as the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. These were men who had fought for the right of individual states to dictate if women and men could be held in bondage. All these biographies of Confederates were published after the Confederacy had been defeated. Their presence on library shelves raises important questions, I think, about what Jesuits in a Northern city would be doing with these narratives, especially since they were all glowing accounts of the men's lives written to support the emerging Lost Cause ideology. Were these men models of character for the young Catholic boys being formed into men at St. Ignatius College? Are they indicative of a lingering pro-slavery inclination? among a religious order long dependent on the labor of the enslaved and slow really to emancipate until they absolutely had to? Is it part of a larger understanding of how the civil war came to be? Is it sort of an abstract concept? Is it not about character? Um, I don't think there are any simple answers, uh, but the the library reminds us of this complex history. One that as we know has been, they worked hard to forget. um, And one where I think we can start to really profitably think about what were the ways forward of dealing um, with a Reconstruction America. So I'm going to stop there. Um, I want to make sure that we have uh, time for questions. Thank you so much. Um, this is uh, a link, uh, this is the URL for the website. Um, and I will, as I said, we'll throw it in the chat.
0: Thank you so much, Kyle. And uh, I'm a step ahead of you. I've, all, I've uh, dropped that into chat already and I hope folks will visit it, explore it, maybe even raise some questions with it uh, again. You can drop in any questions you have through the Q and A feature and um, I'd like to kick us off uh, with a sort of lit studies kind of question. Sorry, Kyle. (laughs) You had talked a little bit about marginalia and about how that reveals the sort of who that is reading Um, and I'm thinking about marginalia as a source of, um, not just the who that's reading, but also um, how they're reading, uh, particularly outside of the sort of authority figures of a librarian who might be policing various boundaries in terms of genre. I mean, like, what what is coming up in the marginalia that jumps out at you? I mean, you've read across this massive library with these fantastic students that have done all this great digital humanities work. Is there anything that's leaping out to you as sort of a thread that's appearing in the marginalia inside of those covers.
1: So here I'm gonna probably reveal that I'm more historian than literary critic, Mm. although you know that I always think literary critics are just smarter versions of historians. Um, So much of the margin, I think what really stands out are more the networks they reveal. Um, There are a, a surprising number of inscriptions from authors to Jesuit figures um, ownership inscriptions that predate, um, so we in fact can start to get glimmers of books owned by uh, women in the community. Um, so there's these ways in which you know that that we can start to see that in those. There's less there's less intervention in the page itself, right? There's not there's not as much of the, what we would hope to see the sort of sideline comments.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but one thing that I think and it's uh, it was part of the talk that I, I just sort of cut it earlier today. in the the hope of sort of saving some time, there's also, we start to see libraries within libraries. Mm. Uh, So there was a Sodality Library at St. Louis, right? So this was for uh, sort of young men at St. Louis University. They started their own library. It was a sort of devotional library and it was all these books of actually biography. The only reason we know about that collection today is because they were given and they survive. And so they have their specific Mm. Sodality stamps on them. so we just start to see the way in which these books are sort of repurposed and removed and sort of gain these new lives existing within. That Sedalia Library is, is particularly interesting because they all come from one Catholic publisher in France, Alfred Maine, and because they're all in French. <laughs> people in St. Louis spoke and read French, people in Chicago not so much.
0: So we have... A deluge of questions coming in, and uh, forgive me if we don't get to all of them, but I'm going to do my best here. Uh, First of all, uh, someone whose work you referenced in your talk, Patrick Hayes, asked Ah. a question uh, who notes the interesting point that you made between Jesuit collecting and how that reveals an interest in women religious. Uh, He writes, uh, "Likely Jesuits were the most sought-after retreat masters because you know they were the most available." Likely they were sought after as confessors and spiritual directors, especially in cities. Wouldn't this strain of collecting serve as an educate serve an educational function for the priests involved in this sort of apostolic work? It's doubtful they were just reading about founders of women's religious orders or their saints just for the sake of reading.
1: That's absolutely, I love that. Um, and I think what's What's daunting about doing library history is I'm never gonna run out of understandings, right? And I think that's why I love giving these types of talks because you, every talk you learn something new, there's a new perspective. Um, I think the one thing I would add to that, uh, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think that's, that's quite good. The other part is, and this, this was really, you know, that, that, I was trying to make that point that it really sunk in this year. Uh, a lot of women religious are put up for sainthood in the 19th century. Uh, And so a lot of those books are there because often Jesuits are the intermediaries working with the orders trying to advance the causes. Uh, So I think they're also collecting those works as part of supporting that larger effort. The disappointing thing, uh, as my friends on here who do Catholic history know, takes a lot longer often for the women religious to uh, work their way through the system and sort of receive, uh, become canonized. Uh, unfortunately, Jesuits are a well-oiled machine who get their own men in often first.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, Molly Hardy thanks you for a great talk. She writes, I was wondering if you see any connection between the biographies in the library and the long Catholic tradition of hagiography. And also because you mentioned Dr. Johnson, I have to ask, is his Lives of the Poets included in in the Profane section of the biographies?
1: Excellent questions, Molly. Yes, Uh, yes to the second. The Lives of the Popes are there. It in fact is uh, not put in biographies though. It's it's part of the literature section, um, which is a sort of interesting move. Um, That series is one that uh, I sort of first realized came across when I was working on the dissenter libraries. So all of the English dissenters were also collecting that as basically their literature shelf. So I'm really loving this idea that I'm finding that there's these common ground, right? So you could go into a fiercely Protestant academy and see the same work uh, that you're gonna find in a, in a Catholic college. Um, and of course, as we know, right, that's the foundation of the, the, the beginning of canonization of, <laughs> of literature. There's a lot of canonization happening in this talk. Um, and yes, I mean, I think the the hagiographic traditions are there. I think maybe what I think is maybe interesting to Molly's question is, they're not collecting older ones though. So these are, there's not a lot of, there's not as much veneration of old books for the sake of being old books Hmm. in this collection, which we might today assume is going on. Uh, They're more interested in getting the most recent edition because it's, it's either the best edition or, as I would say, it's the cheapest edition and they can afford to get it.
0: Well, Kyle, you, you provided me a seamless transition to our next question from uh, Beth Schweiger, who writes, can you say a little bit more about why the librarian didn't collect more older titles? Could this have just been a pragmatic concession to what was readily available in the American market, as opposed to the odd title that survived a long journey with an exiled European Jesuit?
1: It's a, it's a great question. Um, there, I think, is where we have, to look at, we have to look at comparative studies. Uh, So the St. Louis Library, St. Louis University Library, had its core in a sort of a shut down Augustinian monastery that was shut down during the French Revolution. Uh, They aggressively, uh, they actively worked to bring that collection over as the foundation for their new, um, for their new library. They had choices. They could have collected American-based books or they could have imported this sort of expensive European library. I think there's a conscientious choice there. Um, There are... On the one hand, you know, there's, there's an active use book trade in Chicago, uh, and they are certainly probably tapping that. Um, on the other, I think because of financial constraints, they are trying to go with the, the sort of cheapest books that they can get at that time. Um, that said, all of that said, they are, when they have old books, they are very proud of them. Uh, and there's wonderful publicity uh, that's published in 1878, where they kind of brag. They're like, well, we have this over here. It's really quite wonderful.
0: We have a uh, wonderful weedsy librarian question from Lori Miller who asks, what has historically been the weeding policy of the Loyola Library and how has this changed over time? Has it traditionally imposed time limits? You know, for example, if books weren't checked out in a certain amount of time, did they get purged from the library? Wondering about the books that might have departed from the regular library shelves and not gone into special collections or remote storage.
1: This is where Zoom stinks, because if you and I and our our attendees were all sitting in the same room at the library company right now, I would turn to my good friend, Kathy Young, who is sitting in the attendees and say, Mm -hmm. tell us the history. So Kathy is the archivist and the curator of rare books um, and knows much better the the histories of um, deaccessioning. What becomes really interesting there's more work to be done. Uh, it, it's hard to know what the 19th century policies uh, would have been. Loyola's library is packed up in the 1920s and moved from Roosevelt Road up to its current beautiful location on the North Shore. There's a wonderful oral history that talks about books falling off the back of the truck, um, which uh, Kathy was the one who sort of, uh, you know sort of introduced me to this source. More of the more of the depart uh, more of the pe- the pieces that have gone missing really I think have gone missing in the twentieth century um, as the library has grown into you know it's a research university right you can't you can't keep everything uh, I want to say as a final point um, what has been uh, the saving grace of this collection and why a third of those books I think still survive is because they did go into the the library storage facility uh, which I think is a place where most people on campus don't know about it's a large storage space. Uh, one might call it sort of benign neglect they're very they they were very safe there um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there was a bold outbreak and I will leave it at that
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Lori it sounds like we are um, encouraging you to get in touch with Kathy Young uh, for uh, a more scrupulous answer there um, we're all about creating <laughs> connections here at Fireside Chats finally uh, we have a Minute or so left, so I'm just going to try to get this to you in a, a sort of lightning round. Uh, Lynn Priser asks: Are there any books of or about music? Probably. <laughs> that was really fast. Is-
1: I, I, I. You're gonna You're gonna download these questions and send them to me, right? Well, I will. Yes. I will. So any ones I can't answer now, I promise I will look up and and I'll send answers for. So I haven't done much with the music, uh, looking into music books at this point.
0: Is this something that Lynn might be able to ascertain by exploring Jesuit Libraries Providence Project.com?
1: I don't think any of the students have worked on music, so. Okay. All right.
0: Well, this is a future research project.
1: There yeah. is a, there's a wonderful vol of wonderful chapter in Crossings and Dwellings uh, the the conference anthology about music, um, so I'll, I'll send Lynn the citation for that.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, this has been a pleasure okay. as always, I Kyle.
1: Sorry. <laughs>
0: It's a very fast lightning round. Thank you so much for joining us on the eve of Good Friday, all of you, uh, and especially our fantastic presenter, Kyle Roberts.
1: Thank you for having me, Will. Take care, everyone.
0: Have a great night.